In 1858, outside Boston, a bat and ball game was created, which came to be known as the Massachusetts game or town ball. It's not the New York game most people know, with a diamond field and three bases. Rather, in this game, there was only one out per inning. The infield was a square, and there wasn't even a foul territory. There were plenty of reasons why the New York game won out over the Massachusetts game as our national pastime. Most notably, the geometry of the New York game made it both aesthetically pleasing and playable. But the geometry of the Massachusetts game was awkward and off kilter. Many who have played both styles, however, recognize that there are some aspects of the 1858 game that make it preferable to the New York version. What if there was a game that had the geometric appeal and playability of the New York version and the unorthodox aspects of the popular Massachusetts game? 21st Century Town Ball is an attempt to be just that. With a couple tweaks added in 2012, like a physical strike zone, five total bases, stealing first base, and the ball always being live, the goal of 21st Century Town Ball has been, and always will be, to forestall the growing exodus from bat and ball. Let's bring people back to the game. Oh, uh, hey, Grant. You know, uh, I'm thinking of starting my own Townball team, and, well, we're going to need some good-looking jerseys. And, uh, you know, with uh, me being green and all, I figure I should probably go with a different color than green. But uh, I might blend in. You never know. It might be good for me to be wearing green. I, uh, If you listen back to that other episode, I hid in the bushes, and that seemed to fare pretty well for me. So uh, I might need some camouflage. But then again... It's not easy being green. Hmm. I think I have an idea. Is it just a, like a bunch of frogs on your team or what? Yeah, in fact, it's mostly uh, my cousins and extended family. Okay, well, in that case, you all could just wear red uniforms and you could be called the bull frogs. Oh, yeah, that's right, because the bulls, they, uh, they like the color red. Yeah, yeah, I like that, the bull frogs. Well, uh, I'll hook you up with uh, the Jones, and we'll get you some jerseys made. Uh, let me look at my calendar. Yeah, we can probably fit you guys in the next couple months. All righty. Sounds good. I think I'll make uh, my cousin Jeremiah the co-captain. Because, you know, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, and he's not just my cousin. He's a good friend of mine, although I never understood a single word he said. Hello, and welcome back to the 21st Century Town Ball Podcast. I am your host, Grant Moore, and like last week's episode, we're having another repeat appearance from a prior guest, and this time it is none other than Daniel Jones. But this time, he is joined by his wife, Adina. 
Adina has been along for the ride from the beginning and was the principal seamstress in making jerseys for the Newburgh Quakers last year, as well as some other town ball jerseys. Adina did an excellent job, but she could not have done this without the help of Veritas alumna Olivia Veeman. While a student at Veritas, Olivia was an avid town ball player, and after graduating, she joined the Newburgh Quakers, being one of the few players to play in both West Coast town ball tournaments back-to-back in 2022 and 2023. I played with her myself on the Quakers last year, and she was a very important part of our team. She's currently finishing up pre-med in hopes of going to dental school, and in her spare time, she does Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which has become a hobby of mine as well. Speaking of the 2022 West Coast Tournament, in many ways, this was the first time we played with updated new and improved zones made by none other than my high school best friend, Christopher Poole. Chris met Jones at my college graduation party, and the three of us realized we could finally update our zones to a much better design and material. So Chris got to work, and then we were able to start selling physical strike zones as the 21st century town ball company. The second model Chris came up with is what we used in the tournament, and he's developed another model since then. Both Daniel and Adina, Olivia, and Chris have done the most when it comes to the products, materials, and equipment that encompass our game. And, though she's not on this episode, I do want to give a special shout out to my local friend Marcy Horton here in Michigan for doing all of the finishing touches on the jerseys for the Hillsdale people this last year. Thank you, Marcy. Like any other sport, everything feels way more real when you have the look down and you have quality level equipment. We've only been able to really achieve this in the last couple of years, and it's because of these individuals. Well, thanks everybody for coming on today. We're going to hear about the most involved individuals when it's come to the aspects of our game that require products and equipment, clothing, etc. And uh, today we have both Mr. and Mrs. Jones. Uh, we've uh, had Jones on twice before. This is his third appearance, uh, but the first time his wife, Adina, is on today. Good to see you, Adina. And uh, we have Christopher Poole, my longtime friend from high school. Uh, Chris, this fall, we hit 10 years of knowing each other. Did that occur to you? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> 10 years this fall freshman year of high school in our little homeschool co-op in salem oregon and look at where that's led we're still knuckleheads aren't we yeah but to be fair you did start it off with a sneak old voice on the uh sitting in the table behind me so no way oh my gosh the voices (laughs) that has not changed i still do voices for this podcast and then uh of course then we have olivia Olivia Veeman uh, was a student at Veritas School in Newburgh for some time and got uh, exposed to town ball that way. And she has been a player uh, for the Newburgh Quakers. And uh, she's she's a real trooper. She, she joined a very rowdy band of young high school boys, Chris, myself, and Jones, to play in the first West Coast town ball tournament last summer. And... Uh, there were many times during that trip where between Jones and I or Chris or Olivia, we'd all kind of 
give each other looks about you know the crazy antics the boys were up to and just kind of shake our heads a little bit but that's who everyone is today and uh made most sense to get started talking about this by all of the dreams about the aspects of building the equipment for the game years before and jones why don't you run off with that here sure i'd love to before i do just want to point out olivia olivia right here with us is one of the most passionate people about the game of town ball itself so we've been blessed to have her on board with making products but also as a player she plays for the newberg quakers and we have a tournament coming up do you guys know about that in november olivia you know about that right yes i do vaguely vaguely okay i know that um, some people are coming up from fresno and that's about all i know oh well the fresno yeah this grant might have to talk about this at some point but <clears throat> So the new the California All Stars are coming up. The three teams, the Eagles, the Golden Bears, um, and the Coyotes are joining forces to make a California All Star team to see if they can take on the Newburgh Quakers this year. And so Tristan has his work cut out for him. He's got he's got to be able to stop the stampede, so to speak, of all these all these uh, Bears and Eagles coming his way and Coyotes. <laughs> 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 so should I just jump in then, Grant? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so yeah, 21st Century Town Ball, as you guys know, is a bat and ball game based on how they played baseball in Massachusetts before the Civil War. Um, as you guys know, I've talked about this in the podcast before. I, I grew up playing baseball, and <clears throat> I've always had a passion not only for baseball, but for its history. I remember my brother and I used to watch old documentaries of players playing like Shoeless Joe Jackson or Babe Ruth, those, those Ty Cobb, those players. And my brother and I were always enamored with the vintage look that they had back then with the gloves, the small gloves, uh, the jerseys, the baggy jerseys. We we're going we to talk about that today. The wooden bats and other aspects of baseball that was vintage. So when I had town ball in mind, when I was developing the game back even before 2012, I always had this vintage um, <clears throat> kind of objective to the game because I wanted to bring everyone back not just to play the game to enjoy it now but to really bring back bring us back to how the game was played before um, when it was a lot more simple <clears throat> and more simple objectives than some of the objectives we see in baseball today which we've talked about in this podcast a bit before so that's kind of like the backdrop of of even the equipment that we're going to talk about today even the zone itself you know being made of metal and that that kind of era where <clears throat> with the industrial revolution of bringing you know metal into the game of of, of baseball, even with metal cleats and those kinds of things. Even though we we stick to wooden bats, um, the metal zone, <clears throat> and these old vintage 1930s, 1940s style leather baseball gloves, we have all those things in mind. And the jerseys, of course, from the 1910s, 1920s, we have these things in mind. And this is our team, like like Grant mentioned. Um, even though there are other people that have their hands in this work, it's really Chris, um, Adina, my wife, and Olivia, uh, and myself. Um, they've really been <clears throat> kind of working behind the scenes, trying to carry this this vintage feel through the equipment through Town Ball. Um, and I have greatly appreciated the input from all three of these individuals uh, moving forward because they are hard workers and very intelligent and very skilled in what they do. So where did you get the idea to have the current Town Ball we have today? Is, is that even the, the actual- right starting point? The actual ball itself? Yeah. Sure. 
Athena remembers this, right? Because Dina's my partner in crime, that's my wife. Um, but <clears throat> I had been looking for, as we were developing the game in 2012, um, we were looking for the right ball. And I don't remember exactly when, but I came across the lemon peel design um, online when looking for vintage baseball. It's probably because that's when town ball was being played. So I was looking for what, what they, they used back then. So the, the lemon peel design, we actually came across um, a ball, I think called the lemon ball. Um, online and we used it we tried it out for, for a game um, and we discovered it was too light it was too small um, it just wouldn't work for us so we did so much trial and error just purchasing balls online say what what ball is going to work for this game that we're inventing here um, and so at one point I was like okay I, I really need to find the most perfect ball and I came across 19cbaseball.com um, put together by Eric Miklich um, who we have talked to on the phone before, but he is very active in the vintage baseball community. And he had a particular brown leather-covered ball, which, Grant, you're aware of, of that ball. And so <clears throat> I said, you know what, let's give this one a try. Um, it's a little bit bigger. Um, it's uh, just under 10 inches in circumference, a little heavier. Um, we didn't know much about the ball, but we ordered it. And as soon as it arrived and I squished it, I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is perfect. And it had the right squish and the right bounce that we needed at least to get started with town ball. So we used that particular ball, the brown vintage lemon peel baseball for the first five years of town ball all throughout the UHS years. And that was our official ball uh, for that time. It was the thing that drove the desired thickness of the ball, the rule about pegging? Is that what drove your search for a different kind of ball than a baseball? Or did you want to do something different from the get-go? Um, it's more like that's what was available. <clears throat> the lemon peel design, again, had that vintage flair to it, and I had never used it before. So it's, it just kind of like grew in us right away. When, when my students saw the ball, they said, that's a town ball, because that's what we use. So <laughs> even though a vintage baseball enthusiast would call it a vintage baseball, we all refer to it as a town ball. Um, the issue of pegging, we just needed something that was soft. And it just turns out that that ball that they made for that particular company was soft. Probably because in the vintage baseball community, they play barehanded baseball. So they need the ball to be a bit softer than a modern baseball. Got it. It is interesting that that ball turned out to also meet the needs of being soft enough for things like pegging and other things. I, my In my own experience playing with those balls, they do tend to get uh, uh, broken through and, and softened a little easier because of how they're made on the inside there there is definitely more of a homemade aspect to the interior of the ball you're not dealing with a super duper hard shell like you are with um, baseball something uh I, I don't know if jones if we want to jump to like the sweet spot design we've been trying to get with the game about the just hard enough to hit, just soft enough to be hit with. Uh, is is that a good transition point? I think so. So, like I said, Eric Miklich, he's the one who developed those balls. <clears throat> he did a really good job of researching what was probably used to manufacture to make the balls back in the 19th century. I don't say manufacture because they did everything by hand. So to to make those balls, so he did a good job um, of that. Um, and actually, it was someone from the vintage baseball factory, the owner of that company. As I was just talking to him about town balls one day, he pointed out that that particular ball 
doesn't have a lot of pop uh, because it doesn't really have a crack to it. It just kind of goes thud when you hit it. And I didn't even really think about it until he mentioned it. And that's what really got me into thinking about, you know, I could probably make a better ball. I could probably make a better a ball that has more pop than the brown town balls that we we're using while at the same time maintained the softness. So that was something we were after back in 2018. And also they did have some issues with the production at one point where the leather covers were turning out really dragon scaly. We've talked about that before, Grant. And we got one shipment at UHS that we were using that we just couldn't even use those balls because they were just so hard, dragon scaly and hard. And that's when we really decided, you know, we probably need to start manufacturing our own balls if we're serious about town ball, just in case someday um, the balls that we want to use are not available. We don't want to be hung out to dry, so to speak. We want to be able to have our own ball that we're manufacturing so that we can maintain the longevity of town ball uh, for years to come. So that's, that's kind of what prompted us to actually get down and dirty in 2018 and make those balls from scratch. Right. Yes. Uh, can you hear me okay? I just switched my mic. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Uh, and then I came along right around 2019. And am, am I wrong in saying that it was only until about then that you really started to get serious about perfecting the ball design and testing that? Or did that was that already kind of happening before then? What happened was in 2018, I actually, that's the time when I left university high school. And of course, like everything, I get my students involved. I say, hey, guys, let's make some town balls. And so we sat there in my classroom. I think it was after after school one day or during the elective or something. And we sat there and, and wound rubber bands to make the core because we were following Corky's. Yeah, Corky is another person we've had in this podcast, as you know, uh, Corky Gaspel, I think his name is right. Yeah. So he um, he has on the Vintage Baseball Association website, he has videos by which he shows how to make town balls. Actually, I should say vintage baseballs from scratch. So we started with his design as like a basis and went from there. So Shout out to Corky for sure for pioneering the whole idea of making vintage baseballs from scratch. If it weren't for him, I don't know if we'd be at where, where, where we are at today. And so we, we followed his design about using rubber bands for the core. <clears throat> and then we kind of experimented from there. And the town balls that we were making, we actually ended up liking better than the ones we were buying from 19thCenturyBaseball.com. So as soon as we, we tried them and liked them better, we, we knew right away that we were onto something. We found a new recipe within the recipe. <laughs> Always, and then always. where what's like the state of the actual town ball today? I mean, I feel like in a sense we've hit a milestone, but it feels like we're almost always reiterating with it at the same time. Yeah. And this is something, Jerry, you guys don't know about Jerry, but Jerry's one of our, our people in Taiwan that we're working with. Um, he's not a manufacturer. He's a friend. Um, he keeps reminding me, he's a YouTuber in Taiwan. By the way, we're going to be going to Taiwan hopefully this spring uh, to share town ball there. That's something we haven't talked about yet in this podcast, I don't think. Um, but Jerry, um, he keeps reminding me that even the Major League Baseball took a long time to develop before they had it right. And to kind of encourage me not to feel like I have to get it perfect every single time. Because, yeah, we are still doing iterations after iterations, which I think is normal going through the process. Uh, but it's hard to say where we're at right now. We have something that works but I think we'll always be improving our, our products. For sure. And something I just wanted to say about the ball is that unlike baseball, our game, the outcomes of the game, the variables that change in it are not as dependent on the ball as the, the baseball ball is in that game. We have no foul territory that changes how 
pitching decisions are going to be made. Yes, we play an over usually overhand fast pitch game. I mean, no one can tell, no one is forced to throw any particular way. As long as you hit the zone, you're good. But it tends to be fast pitch, and we're not engineering for a particular type of perfect ball. Even though we have found a sweet spot that does the best for the type of gameplay town ball tends to have. But that tends to have part is really important because it implies that it's not a formulaic thing. And it won't, I don't think it'll ever be a formulaic thing. And that's why we have had the freedom to mess around with what we like about the ball quite a lot. Um, I haven't really been around for the years when uh, uh, more of a thud ball, a mush ball would have been used. I've been around more so for the, for the pop era <laughs> if we want to call it that um uh, but I've, I've played with with both and I, I like the, the pop a lot more of course especially when you know you're playing with a, tons of players and you want to buy yourself that time to get on the bases and then you know not have your infielders crowd around you and just do that but yeah jones what's up yeah speaking of the pop <clears throat> honestly when you're playing town ball there's nothing like it when you hit the ball hard and it makes a loud, loud crack. I didn't know this, but the whole thing about the crack of the bat is really more about the crack of the ball. I didn't know that until I started um, messing with balls. But to get a good crack of the bat, you got to have the ball that gives the right crack. It's not the part of the wood that's making the crack, which is maybe what you would think. It's actually the core of the inside of the ball, depending how thick that is, which was just a fun kind of like physics thing we learned. Jones, I just wanted to say... If- is there anything else uh, before we might change topics? Anything else you or anyone else on the call wanted to say about uh, the balls we use in our games? No, it's been a fun process developing. I'm, I'm very passionate about it, obviously, <clears throat> and I enjoy sewing the balls a lot. Um, but I do want to say one more thing, you know, if you guys want to say anything too, but uh, we also are developing indoor town ball, and we finally have a design for that, <clears throat> and we've been testing it, and it's amazing. So at some point, we'll be selling on our website, not only tournament town balls, but also indoor town balls, which can be used outdoor also if you want to play like a more casual pickup game that's a little bit softer. Yes, indoor town ball is crazy. <laughs> as yeah. as we've mentioned before on other episodes. Um, why don't we switch gears to the jerseys? So the the jerseys are something that are only like in the last year and a half, I want to say that's how new they are and like the way we've been doing them. Cause I know in the past there have been like vintage look, but not vintage material jerseys. So I, I don't know which person is this best to kick that off um, about talking about the jerseys. I'll let you handle that Jones. Yeah. Dean, you want to tell us a story? Cause um, I, yeah. I had the idea of the vintage jerseys. I think, Olivia, is this correct? Our first first year was 2022 that we used Quaker jerseys. Is that correct? Yes, because you contacted me in January, and then our tournament was in June. Yeah, and both you and Adina were involved in the making process. Adina, you want to just kind of outline the history of that for us? Well, Daniel came to me, or Jones, I should say, came to me um, with an idea of how he wanted a jersey to look. I think it was the 1920s or 1910. 
1919 White Sox, actually. 1919 White Sox. Okay. And then I, you know, I, my background is I've made quilts. I've made PJs for my kids for Christmas. You know, I'm, I'm like not super seamstress, but I'm, I have enough. I've done enough to know um, the basics and how to um, make it look and little tricks here and there. And the, just the thing, just like a general know-how of clothing construction not a tailor level, but um, rudimentary. And so I was looking at it, poked around on YouTube for some ideas and just started going with ratios based off of um, his old, uh, Daniel's old jerseys and goodness, um, started putting it together. And he was going, you know, all along the way, he was giving me um, input on how exactly he wanted the like if you wanted piping or a certain collar if something was wrong he would or didn't quite look right we would brainstorm on how to kind of create the look that he was looking for and yeah and so it was kind of like i would i would work on it and he would you know watch the kids while we while kind of put this together and after a, i think a couple it didn't take very many tries but after a couple tries we found ratios that worked and i started to write out how I got that specific design, like what, what is so what first and measurements for um, different pieces. I mean, really, it really is a basic, like the three pieces, there's the back, the two front pieces that overlap for the button section. And then a, what I call a yoke, which is the, the neck collar area. And then that goes down to also contain the button. So the part with the buttons is actually like three layers thick or sorry, two layers and then two layers for the other side as it connects. So, you know, that, that really helps with keeping the buttons on and keep making that area more secure because there's a lot of stitching that goes into that area. And things like how to, you know, how to sew, how long do we want the jersey? Do we want it to be something that's untucked or tucked? And all of those types of things are all the things that we had to like talk through until we found something that he liked that he felt like represented that time period and kind of matched the style he was looking for. Is there anything significant that changed in the process of doing this for the first time that became like a precedent for future jerseys? I don't think we did a ton more changes other than the little tweaks we were doing along the way. The things that changed between the two two different styles that we've done for different groups is the three-quarter length uh, sleeve versus the short sleeve, the piping versus... Um, having no piping and then having a, a, like an extended collar. And then the other hard or tricky part was doing the stitching of the, the name onto the front and the, the, on the back too. So I prefer the quilting hoop so I can, you know, do it by hand. For me, that's faster because the sewing machine for me, I was like, oh, this is a lot of moving around. And I felt like it just, it was so much easier just hands-on because I had the quilting background. So I'm like, this is easier for me. I'm faster at it. Um, and I think Olivia preferred the other one. Is that right? Yes, I did prefer the other one. So I had a little bit of a sewing background, but I did not know how to use a machine at all. And Jones just called me up one day. He was like, hey, can you sew? I was like, a little bit? And he was like, great, you can make our jerseys for us. <laughs> so that was kind of how I got roped into it. But, um, but yeah, I didn't have much of a sewing background, so I found it a lot easier to actually use the machine. Because I wasn't super fast with canceling. To make it all go a lot faster for both of us, I, we ended up just doing the cutting on our edge when we had like a larger quantity. 
And then we do all the cutting and put it into bags and then send it or give, hand it off to Olivia and she would do the stitching part. And that's kind of how we ended up doing the, the assembly line later on. And did the two of you mostly just work together on the Quakers jerseys or was it also for other teams? Well, we started off, I did, did I do most of the Quakers? I don't even, it's all a blur. We did a about half and half for the Quakers. Half and half. We started out, yeah, we started out working together on most of them. And then okay. once we had done a few, we split it up evenly the rest of them. Okay. So when we did Quakers and what was the other? Um, There's the, the Hillsdale people ones. People, um, right. Yeah, I remember, I think you, you designed them, but then I sewed three of them later that same summer. Yeah, those are the early ones, the early Hillsdale people ones right, right. before I was able to have someone local where I live help out um, and take away remember, most of the labor <laughs> so you could get, get some necessary a break because it is a time consuming process. I mean, how long? I think you, you kind of got it down to a science on how long it takes per jersey, right? How long was that? Oh, gosh. Well, to cut to cut the jersey, yeah. which I did more of, right? It was... I think one jersey maybe took about an hour to cut, and then how long to sew, Olivia? Probably six hours minimum to sew. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let alone the cutting. Um, yeah. It is very time consuming. There's also the lettering we had to cut too. That took me a while too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's hope yeah. Uh, by the time we have town ball teams in really long city names, <laughs> that we have a much more efficient process by then. <laughs> So we're not having to hand cut like 14 letters. Like the, the town ball team of Binghamton, New York. <laughs> like we'll hopefully have a, a, a more efficient process by then. As as a you know, total witness and enjoyer of those jerseys and having not been in the making process of them, I loved those things. I mean, I those those are so cool. Like there is nothing like getting to like wear not just any jersey right because I mean, any sport becomes more real when you have the jersey for it but we were starting to go with the whole vibe of vintage style not just the look but the actual fabric and the cuts and it doesn't feel right to say i felt like i was walking back in time because as jimmy mentioned actually on our the podcast right before this episode he he kind of sees town ball existing in three different times. It does have a look to the past aspect to it. It has a very present aspect to it in that the ball is live. The game is here. We're playing it while it's just a game. And it does have a look to the future aspect in terms of the fact that it can do a lot of different things. So we're wearing jerseys that in some interesting way seem to fit all three of those time things while still having the vintage look because from someone on the outside who's never played this or seen it that actually is the thing we want to try and make them think about because we're reminding them of a time when things that everyone likes about town ball actually were the things that baseball was which aren't so much the case anymore we can you know debate that but that that would make something like making a jersey for town ball really challenging i think but you guys did such a good job I, I have two of them, right? I have my Quakers jersey. I have my Hillsdale people jersey. Shoot, before I die, I might have a third jersey <laughs> from a different team. You know, but they just look so good. My personal favorite color and design 
is the coyotes jerseys that's my favorite you guys know that and just knocked it out of the park with that one so give give yourselves a pat on the back <laughs> is there any other aspects to the jersey design or making or enjoying <laughs> process that you wanted to touch on only that we probably need to raise our prices because they take so long to make made in the usa i mean i think they're really worth a lot of money honestly and we've been underselling them but at some point i think we're gonna have to sell them for what they're worth because they really are like Grant said <clears throat> a blast from the past that we're using now today in game like in real time which is just an amazing phenomenon because it makes you feel like you're in the past and in the present and the future all at the same time i totally agree with what you said grant well and as far as the quality we're talking about here there is another company out there that we've kind of seen as a little bit of a model uh in terms of the high-end nature of these jerseys right jones yeah, that's true. Um, Ebbets Field flannels. I don't yes. know if we'll ever get to that level, but but yeah, we, we definitely aspire to be like them, <clears throat> for sure. Yeah. So we talked about the ball, we talked about the jerseys, and the next thing we're going to talk about is probably the most indispensable part of the game. You can modify you know, whatever ball you're playing with just if you want to get people together and just play and you don't care. But this next aspect is a part of the game you literally can't even play the game without, and that is the physical strike zone. Jones, this is something that came as an original concept that was not a part of the original Massachusetts game, correct? That's absolutely correct. Do you want me to talk about that? or? Yeah. Sure. So in Town Ball, the original version of Town Ball, Town Ball, two words, Town Ball, um, a.k.a. the Massachusetts game. Um, I've told the story before, but when we played the game in 2012, we fell in love. My students and I fell in love with the game instantly. Um, it was very similar to a game I was coming up with already, and so we had a good framework by which to work with. One of the things about the original version of the Massachusetts game is that there's only 21 rules, and among those 21 rules, you can see that the game was never developed completely. There's just so many things missing from the game. Most notably, in the Massachusetts game, according to how the rules were written, there's no incentive for the batter to ever swing. In other words, the batter could stand there all day and never swing without penalty. Like in baseball, there's strikes, right? Throw the ball down the middle, strike one. Throw the ball down the middle, strike two. The batter doesn't swing, that's two strikes already. Strike three, you're out. In the Massachusetts game, you could pitch all day. No incentive to run. So when we first started playing town ball, <clears throat> we tried all kinds of different things behind the batter to kind of give the batter the incentive to run. We we didn't like the idea of strikes, you know, in baseball, in that you just kind of watch the ball go by. Um, in particular, because it requires an umpire to stand behind and to have to somehow judge whether or not that was a good pitch or a bad pitch. It's a very, I've been an umpire before, it's a very stressful job because inches can change the whole, whole game and people get really mad at you if you make a bad call. So one one blessing about the Massachusetts version of game, uh, Massachusetts version of baseball is that the batter doesn't come back home after to score. Home is not where the batter is. And early on, we realized that we could seize that as an opportunity, because if the if the runner doesn't have to come back home to score a run, that gives us the opportunity of having what we call a physical strike zone behind the batter, which will never interfere with gameplay. If you think about baseball. If you had a physical strike zone behind the batter by which to determine whether or not it was a good pitch, think about Jackie Robinson at third base trying to steal home. That, that zone would be in the way. The catcher could never go around the zone to tag the runner out. So baseball 
in a physical zone does not work. Town ball, or the Massachusetts version of play, in a physical zone is a match made in heaven. And so we seized upon that and we tried different iterations. We tried a bucket on top of a tee, like think of a tee ball with a bucket. <laughs> so it made a big boom when you hit the, hit the zone. Um, we tried PVC pipe zones. We tried all kinds of different models. Um, we, we were thinking about wiffle ball because in wiffle ball, there's a physical zone also. If it hits the zone, it's a strike right now. I can't remember which one it is. But with our big, heavy 19th century brown town ball, that PVC pipe zone was just getting whacked into pieces, even with a ton of duct tape on it. So we eventually realized we had to make a metallic zone. And that's where the idea for the zone came from. And before we, we get to Chris, I know we got to talk, talk to Chris about the actual making of the zone. The intellectual side of designing the zone took a lot of mathematics, a ton of mathematics. Dina might remember that I was in our, in our um, garage just drawing design after design on our, on our homeschool chalkboard because I wanted to have a zone that was based in the Fibonacci sequence and one that was meaningful with respect to the human body. And so we took the human, the average human height, which is about six feet for, for a male, and we kept dividing by the Fibonacci sequence until we got to this size of a zone, which, by the way, is the exact same width of home plate. It just incidentally worked out that way. I don't know if someone thought of that when they made the width of home plate, but the width of our zone is the same as home plate if you take into account the size of the ball. And so if you think about uh, the golden ratio and how that relates to the human body, there's a lot of science and theories about the human body being based upon the Fibonacci sequence. We kind of use those numbers and broke it down until we have the zone that we have. So the zone is actually a golden rectangle, just like the, the, the field itself also has several golden rectangles. The batter's box is the same golden rectangle. The Fibonacci sequence really is every, in every part of the game, which is why as an organization, we're going to pursue a patent on those zone dimensions, because we realize that we absolutely need to protect the development of the zone in order to guarantee that tumble can be played uh, for generations to come in the way that it should be played. Right. So what was it like building the first metallic zone? How, how did that even happen? And when did that happen too in the UHS years? I was living in Squaw Valley at the time. I don't remember what year it was, maybe 2017, 2016, somewhere in there. Um, and I, I took the idea of the zone to my local hardware store in Squaw Valley and said, hey, look, I need to make a strike zone. And the man who was there working was just phenomenal. He helped me find all the parts out of three quarter inch piping and he put a zone together on the spot it took him about maybe 45 minutes and i walked out the door 80 bucks <laughs> of materials and i had a zone that was true to true to the proportions of the, the size wow and this is the uh this is the one that is now in the possession of alex bukite is it yes, that one that's the one, that's we, actually the one. Made two, we actually made two of those so one's in fresno somewhere and one's with alex that's right Okay, that's right. Because when I went down in October of 2020, they had a zone to play with because I didn't have one because I was out there for family reasons. But yeah, so it's 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 a little awkward compared to what we have now because you have the joints that are thicker than the actual pipes on the whole on the sides. So it's definitely a C3PO type uh, type of zone. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the best. You've never heard of that description, but that's so accurate when you put it that way. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's definitely not a, um, a nice smooth R two D two zone. <laughs> it's, it's, it's clunky C three PO. 
I, I, in a weird way, I still have like a really deep love for that one because that's the one that was that came along with the game when I was introduced to it four years ago. But I, I do believe the zones that we use now are superior. They're the standard, or at least the design is the standard, and uh, they're great. So yeah, I, th I think that's your cue, Chris. Chris, uh, you came to my college graduation party in Newburgh. This yes. this is this is such a good story. <laughs> we uh we saw each other off and on during my college years. I mean, you and one mm -hmm. other of my friend from Salem were literally the only two friends I kept up with from high school. You did a college stint for a year, didn't work out, and you came back and then you basically been working on a farm with uh friends of yours for four or five years now at this point. Close to six. Oh my gosh, you gotta be kidding me. Yes. Yeah. You all, <laughs> you all have known Chris with a beard. I've known Chris without one. It's different. Wow, you also knew me in my uh, attempt at chops days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You you yeah. found your style. It's much better now. But early May of 2021, I graduate college from George Fox University. The way they did the graduation ceremony was we were still a year past COVID, so they were still making accommodations and instead of having everyone in the football stadium and everybody, you know, having their five seconds of fame going across the stage and things like that, they did it where you and everyone else in your major all were designated the same like two hour period in which you in a car of your choice with all the people closest to you would caravan through campus in about a 15 minute period where you had a station where you'd get out of your car and take pictures with the faculty from the department you graduated from. The next station was you'd get out of your car and take photos with the bear because our mascot is a Bruin bear. And then the last station was you got out and our president would hand you the diploma. You'd get the diploma picture done and then you were gone. So that was, that was their uh, accommodation version, which, it actually was kind of nice. Uh, it's not what I had always dreamt of. But anyway, Chris was there. Jones was there. Uh, I, we have a picture on my fridge of myself, Jones, uh, my mom, my grandma, all standing in front of this background. It's on our fridge. And then we all went back to a friend's house in Newburgh for the after party. And this is where Chris and Jones met each other for the first time, if I'm not mistaken. If if it was if it wasn't because of this, I mean, who knew who knew what was going to come from you guys meeting at this party, right? And of course, we all know that Jones is one of the most opportunistic people in the world. And as soon as he gets to know you, he starts telling you about Town Ball. So, uh -huh. Chris, being the very you know interested, curious, open-minded, agreeable person that he is, uh, <laughs> was was so eager to hear about this super you know nerdy, convoluted game. And then, I don't know how it happened in the conversation. Jones, you may remember this better than me or Chris, but I happened to mention, I'm like, hey, Jones, Chris is going to school to get welding certifications right now, part-time while he works at the farm. Maybe he could build us a zone. And then you're like, oh my gosh, yes, you're a welder. Can we work with you? <laughs> and it just kind of, as far as I knew, it kind of took off from there, right? I mean, can you guys fill in the gaps for me? Well... I remember at this party, you mentioned that I was a welder, and Jones is 
face just absolutely lit up with excitement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's right. And, and I think yeah. at the time, I think the first question you asked Grant was, hey, can you help us make the balls? Wasn't that the case, Chris? We were talking about the balls first. Yes, you were. So for a couple of months, or for like, what, a month and a half after that, I was thinking, okay, let's see how we can make a ball. But uh, then I can't remember if it was Grant or uh, you, but somebody said, uh, asked about making a zone, making the zones in particular. I was like, huh, I guess I can see what I can do. And uh, got a couple of pieces of scrap metal together and uh, basically slapped them together into something that resembled the zone. It, it took a couple iterations. I think it was maybe the third, the third try was actually something that was more usable. Wouldn't you say, Chris? Yes. The first one was like yeah. way too big, something like that, because we, we had miscommunications about whether it's the interior or the exterior dimensions. Um, but one thing yep. I'll say, say about Chris is that his attention to detail is so good that I don't even measure them anymore. When, when, when he makes them, I'm like, dude, I already know it's going to be so precise, which... As you guys know, in town ball, that precision is really key because like a small difference in size will change the game quite a bit, actually, giving the pitcher or the batter the advantage. Which zone was the one that you brought to that pavilion game at Veritas that got turned into that video later that Elijah made? Which which one was that, Chris? That was number one. That was the, the scrap heap. <laughs> we have yeah, that on video. Nice. Nice play. Nice play. Let's go. Let's go. God. No. Beautiful throw. Beautiful peg. All right. Time out. We have we have an initiation to do. Mr. Poole, come on over. Wait, don't get off me. <gasps> oh my gosh. A real zone. <laughs> Whoa! It didn't seem scrappy at the time. I mean, for us, it was just like, whoa! We're just like, it's pretty, it's pretty dramatic just the way you brought it into the, in the middle of the game. I think we were playing a game in the pavilion. And yeah, so, yeah. Like, time out. And then Chris just walks in with the zone. We're all like, what? A real zone? Because what were we using before that? Was it, was it the one that Grant made uh, wood? I, oh, yeah. I think so, yeah. That super ghetto zone that I just screwed screws into the side and called it good. Oh, my gosh. We made it in Michigan, but we used it in, in uh, Newburgh. Right, because I handed it off to you when you came mm -hmm. out to Michigan, mm -hmm. August of twenty one. Mm -hmm. Yes, and then we you guys traded, played. We yeah. traded zones at that point. I gave you, I gave you the one that Alex now has. Yes, the the knobby one. The knobby one, C three PO. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I that wooden zone is demolished now, right? It just broke on impact one time, so I'm told. Well, I I, I converted it into a ball winding machine, but that's that's another story. So at this point, you know, I'm in Michigan. Chris is outside of Salem, out by Highway 22, and then you're about an hour or so north. Of, and then we all start kind of working together and chatting. And when did we start making zones that the 21st Century Tumble Company could sell? That was shortly before the Fresno trip in 22. 
Uh, I made a couple of working models, if you will, and brought them to swap them out with the first one, the the Frankenstein zone. <laughs> uh, and Bob Jones liked it well enough. He's, he said, all right, let's make a couple more for the Fresno trip. So well, they were awesome. Two more. They're awesome. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, I, I, think, mean, I think the design pretty, pretty quickly at that time, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Chris before the tournament that you're referring to, the first one we had last summer, twenty two. Jones and I were talking about a lot of things leading up to that trip, but I definitely pitched the idea to Jones. Like Chris should absolutely come on this trip for the whole thing, and he should just be a, our roadie with and with the zones. You know, he's got he's got to see the full embodiment of this experience firsthand, and uh, Chris. Olivia was on that trip as well. She was on the, the the Quaker team and we all played out there. What was it like to play with a brand new zone for our first ever regional tournament? I mean, any of you can speak to this one. It was the first time I had actually played town ball. So yeah, you were it, spoiled. <laughs> I was. What was like? But, the, you, sorry. Go ahead. Olivia, what was it like for you to play with a new zone? Uh, I just remember it was amazing because we had that wooden zone for so long and it was always falling apart. So it was just great to have a zone that would actually stay put and stay together. And that nice clink that it would make when the ball hit the zone was just so satisfying. So it was really great to have that for our first tournament. It's also the first time pitchers had to take a look at it as, as well. You know, who knows what that was like for people like Tommy and shark bait and others we have so many pictures of all the teams together on that tournament trip and it's it's becoming kind of an unofficial tradition now that anytime after a game the team poses with the zone in the center and i think that was the first time we really started doing that was that summer so that that was just iconic in my head i agree Um, absolutely yeah if i can add one thing Grant, in his foresight, right, kept insisting that Chris make more zones. And I was like, Grant, we're not going to sell that many zones. Because I thought maybe we'd sell two or three. But people just kept kept buying them. And I don't know how many zones there are now. Chris probably is the only person that knows. But they're all over the United States at this point. Chris, do you know how many zones we have at this point? I actually don't. It's probably under 10, right? But close to 10. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's close to 10 in total over all the various models but i think there's three of the model twos and there is two and a half of the current model threes rolling around uh between yourself daniel and grant's got one of the uh new ones and tristan has the the latest of the uh centurion model zones yeah, and but my, my point though, Grant, is that it really speaks to the rapid growth of the game, even beyond what I expected. And I keep seeing this exponential growth happening, even though it's a very small, like think about an exponential curve, it's flat for a while, but it's still exponential. I mean, if you just look at the trajectory of this, I think Chris is gonna be very, very busy soon. I think the best metric to use to judge how fast the sport is growing is how many zones are needed. Because you cannot play a game of town ball without a zone. Like the zone is just indispensable. So I I think that's going to be the easiest, like 
one-to-one -one close to it metric that will be the best indicator of what things are like with the sport i think we've we counted the other night i could remember six zones off the top of my head in the last year so uh, the teams in california i think almost all of them or one or two of them got new ones rylan has one now i have one and then there's been at least two or three that have shuffled between the veritas uh, constituency and then now where you you guys are in uh, washington like you said jones we are you know, working on the pattern for the dimensions, and it's just been it's been a fun, you know, evolutionary process with the zone. Um, oh, this is a tiny little fact, uh, or, or a tiny little question that you know might seem trivial, but I'm curious, just for the record, where did you guys get the idea of what kind of netting to put over the front? I don't know if I've ever actually ever been told this. So when I was at University High School, <clears throat> I just bought some common netting, sports netting, but the netting would keep ripping the ball would be pitched so fast and the ball so heavy. At one point, I just got so tired of it. So I went ahead and bought some full-on truck netting, which is advertised as not being very breakable. And so I bought a bunch that together with some bungee cord, and I handed it to Chris when I still lived in Newburgh. Isn't that right, Chris? Yep. And I think that's what you uh, still use, right? That's still the same, yeah. the, same, the same thing I gave to you at that point. Yeah. I'm almost out of the uh, netting, but I still have boatloads of the, the cord. The bungee cord. <laughs> I doubt I'll be running out of bungee anytime soon. Just don't go and use it for bungee jumping, Chris. Oh, darn. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's the, I, like you said, Olivia, there's something so satisfying about having the zone there and the contact. You know, the, there's one thing for a ball to hit a glove in your hand. And in baseball, that's, I guess that's the satisfaction the pitcher gets. But it almost seems richer or just more decisive when it hits this thick object in the you know in the perimeter of the zone or just dead center in the net. And there's just there's no arguing about it. It's just objective sudden death. And and there's something so incredible about it. We talked about the zone, we talked about the jerseys, we talked about the balls. Jones, I know you kind of touched on the idea of wanting to do vintage-style gloves in the future. You've been collecting a bunch of those personally, though, over time. And you actually lent one to me, which I used today, as a matter of fact. It's like my favorite glove. You ever, I don't think you've ever really talked about the gloves and, and what your hopes are on that end. Again, it comes back to what my brother and I enjoy, enjoy as kids. When we'd watch documentaries of you know old old baseball games mm -hmm. in the Babe Ruth era, and just just the skill that's required to catch a baseball using a vintage glove, which are a lot smaller, it's a different type of skill than catching a ball with a big modern baseball glove that's so big. It requires more skill. It's much more set. People that use the vintage gloves will tell you that it just feels so good when you catch it. It's a very different feeling of catching than when you catch it with a bigger glove. I personally have a dream of watching two professional town ball teams play a game of professional town ball using vintage baseball gloves. How cool would that be to require them to use vintage gloves? We can specify them the rules using smaller gloves, that kind of thing. So if they actually have to play with skill, um, a game that's as crazy as town ball with skill would be a really, really fun thing to watch. So that's kind of what we have in the back of our minds. That's what I have in the back of my minds. But when we play town ball, usually people just bring their their glove, whatever they have, because it's hard to enforce something like that when you're playing pickup town ball. But I think at a, a more professional level, I think it would be completely 
legitimate to require vintage gloves because I don't know if you guys know this, but there's actually a limit to how big baseball gloves can be. So there's already a built-in precedent for limiting glove size. I would just like to limit the size a little bit more to make the glove smaller to require more skill <clears throat> when playing town ball. And plus it looks really cool. The vintage vintage jerseys, vintage gloves, I would just love to see it. I played in a church softball league this summer, and I don't have much of a baseball background, so I am not aware of how there are specific gloves for specific positions. And unlike town ball, you kind of just play the same position in baseball. So I remember last year, I had I got a couple comments for bringing the, the old, they called it the old-timey glove. Uh, it's the one you gave me, Jones. It's from the, from the 1940s. Uh, but I got a lot more comments on it this year. I made the mistake of wearing it at first base a couple times. And not just in a baseball game, a softball game. That glove uh, is more of like a, it like fits just my hand and it's really not much else beyond my hand. So it already can't adequately palm the softball, nor can it do so when it's being thrown at me like a bullet to get the out before the guy gets to first. So That's hilarious. Are you serious? Use a vintage baseball glove to play soft softball. Oh wow. At first base. Huh. This is how clueless I am about bat and ball games outside of town ball. <laughs> Everyone that comes to town ball tends to have a cursory knowledge of these mainstream aspects that I should know. Every time people would compare baseball things to me, I'm like, uh I don't know what to tell you, man. Like today I played a pickup game and this guy is wanting to pitch and he's, I'm the catcher. He's like, okay, one for a two seam, two for a four seam. I'm like, that's Chinese to me, man. Just throw the ball. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I learned my lesson. I switched my glove. My hand forgave me. I felt better after <laughs> I, I uh, didn't need to ice it, but yeah, the, the, the glove variation in town ball is something I would love to, witness someday because there are some things you can individualize about the different parts in the game that are just not a design function of other bad ball games yeah and speaking of that overall i think the point of this is that we do have some designs in mind for town ball that designs for vintage baseball gloves from the 30s and 40s and a couple from the 50s a couple from the 20s by which we we want to capitalize on that era it's kind of like we for 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 town ball, I think the way I see it is that we've been capitalizing since town ball is a game that's played in the present. We kind of take the best of, of whatever we can find. It's kind of it's kind of eclectic that way. In that we look to 1910s and 20s for the jerseys, look to 1930s and 40s for the gloves, right? We look to the 19th century for the ball. So we kind of we kind of look at the entire history of baseball and pick and choose the best from every era, and put it together to make town ball. That's what, that's what we like about the game. We just we get to pick and choose what we want. And so we're, we're making town ball the best game that we think can be played with respect to bat and ball. And we looked at the 21st century with the zone. That's right. <laughs> uh, Olivia, Adina, was there anything else that you just wanted to say about anything? Adina, I mean, you've been along for the ride the whole time <laughs> from, from Fresno, UHS, this whole, you know, longer than Chuck. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, well, I think the, the beginning stuff back at UHS, I we were homeschooling. So and we were up an hour drive away from UHS. That's where we lived. And so 
I was really not a part of that world. I would hear names of students, you know, players, you know, keep bringing up these people. And I, you know, I've, I've never met them. So, I mean, I think I got to meet a couple of them at our goodbye party when we were moving to Oregon for the first time. And so it was kind of funny because I knew about them and I knew of them. And I, you know, that's, that's, as, that's as much contact as I had with Town Ball. That's, that, that was the extent of it. And then when we moved to Newark and all of a sudden, you know, I was teaching, you know, we were, uh, you know, which is completely different than homeschooling, Um, very time consuming, very absorbing. And all of a sudden, one day, Daniel said, hey, we need to make some jerseys now. (laughs) I was like, ah, so, well, you know, I have eight kids. I think at that point we had seven. And so I would basically say, okay, we have to trade off then because we have a ton of kids. So you're going to have to take over the house right now while I carve out this little bit of time to create these things and to, to brainstorm. And I think, um, thankfully we had some space, um, where we were renting our house. We had some property. So the kids would go outside and play and we try to, you know, get as much time alone to be able to just puzzle this out. So that was kind of my first immersion into town ball. Again, when, um, our our trade-off was I would help him with town ball if he watches all the kids. (laughs) So that was kind of, that's, again, that's my experience with town ball. I, I think I've played it once. And that was with wow. the baby on my back. So, <laughs> what? Yeah, so I think it was... she's actually really, really good. That's the crazy <laughs> thing. Even though she doesn't play because she has so many kids that she's taking care of all the time, <laughs> yeah. she's actually a really good player. So he's still trying to recruit me for um, whatever his next team is going to be. But I-, I said we can't have babies at that t- point anymore. No. If, I- if I'm to play, yeah, so. it's a liability. <laughs> My mom has played before, and I always make sure that uh, she always asks me, you better go up after me, because you better use all three of your hits to get me around. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not running at full speed. I can't. That's what she'll tell me. Yeah. Olivia, is there anything else you wanted to say? Uh, I just wanted to add that I never thought I would get this deep in the town hall. Um, first time I met Jones, he actually came in was doing his job interview at Veritas and I was in the class that he taught that day. So it was kind of like, okay, who's this guy who's teaching math weird. And then he was our teacher the next year and he's playing this weird sport. And we were like, what is this? But it was actually so much fun. And then I got become super passionate about it. Now I've been involved pretty much since the beginning and I never thought I would have gotten as deep into it, but it's something that I really love and hope to be doing forever. Same. <laughs> I didn't think I would be this involved either. You're very involved, Grant, I'd say. Oh, yeah. Like second most at this point. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I'm going I'm to emphasize one more time just how passionate Olivia is. She played for my uh, Brooklyn, was it Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers team? at Veritas, intramural team. And, you know, I, I picked her one of the top three players on my team and I think she bad lead off or bad second or something. Uh, and it's just, you just know when someone loves the game so much. So it's, Olivia's the kind of person you want to have around, both for her skills. She could do a lot of different things. Her passion for the game is is unmatched by anybody I know. So thanks, Olivia, for, for all you've done for Town Ball, both, both as a player, both as a player and also as um, a jersey maker. Chris, any final words? We've got like a minute and 20 seconds before this thing dies. Um, I think I, I've said what I need, but I think I, 
it's been encompassed with all y'all. Y'all, y'all have expressed it, the essence of handball. But we couldn't have had that tournament without your help and your presence last summer, that was for sure. But I've spent some time with the Jones kids and the Jones family, and every time I have, it's been a joy and a blessing. I'm sad I can't do it more, but it's been so wonderful just to get to know your family, even beyond working with you guys. So thank you all so much. And uh, we'll all see each other again soon sometime. So hope you all have a good night. All right. Thank you, Grant. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the 21st Century Town Ball Podcast. If you want to learn more about the sport, you can visit our website at 21ctownball.com or look at our content on Instagram under the page at 21ctownball. If you're interested in playing the game or creating your own townball team, you can DM us on social media or email us directly at 21ctownball at gmail.com and we would be happy to start a conversation with you. I'm your host, Grant Moore, and this is the 21st Century Town Ball Podcast. Is there a ball in your town?